Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. It's good to be with you today. We are beginning a new series of lessons this week. We are going to begin looking at Thessalonians. And these lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly, and this is the summer quarter of 2021. And today's lesson is from June 6th. The title, A Transformed People. And we will be looking there at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Our uh, scripture today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 2 through 10. The focus of today's lesson, a church transformed by the gospel is a church that impacts its world. Now, Paul arrives at Thessalonica as part of his second missionary journey with Silas. They had recently been at Philippi, and you remember the story there, how they had been thrown into jail, and then while they were in the jail, the earthquake struck, and through all of that, the jailer and his whole family were converted. Well, the final result was that Paul and Silas were ushered out of town, so to speak, and they found themselves on the move. So, their next stop was Thessalonica. And Paul's experience at Thessalonica began uh, pretty well. The Scripture tells us that they saw some of the Jews being converted, but there were many God-fearing Gentiles converted and quite a few prominent women, it says. But this initial success, it raised a backlash among the Jewish leaders who were there in the synagogue. And these Jewish leaders stirred up a mob against Paul and Silas. And this mob goes to the house where they are staying. Now, they don't find Paul and Silas, but they do grab onto Jason, the man who owns the house, and several others. And they haul them before the city officials. And they make the charge against them. They say, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. And so it's interesting. This is how they see Paul and Silas, men who have caused trouble all over the world. Now, Jason and the others are eventually allowed to post bond, and they are released. But that night, the believers there, uh, under the cover of darkness, they smuggle Paul and Silas out of the city. And so Paul, Paul continues his journey. He ends up in... Um, uh, Athens and later in Corinth. But he's wanting to know how things are going there at Thessalonica. Now, he was there for only a few weeks. And so he's curious, you know, did he have a difference? Did he make an impact? And so he sends Timothy back to see how they're doing, to see what's happening. And Timothy brings him a good report. He says, 
things are going well, that the gospel has taken root, and there's been a transformation there. And so Paul sits down and he writes this letter to the Thessalonian church. And when he writes the letter, you can tell he is delighted to see the effects of the gospel there. Paul sees a church that is transformed by the gospel. And as a result, the church at Thessalonica is impacting that whole area of the world. Now, Paul had enemies there at Thessalonica. They were trying to discredit him after he left. They were spreading all kinds of false rumors. Basically, though, their argument was Paul was an imposter. He was more of a religious con man. He wasn't really a true prophet of God. Instead, Paul was interested only in his own prophet. He was interested in what he could get from the Thessalonians. And so to combat this, Paul points to the Thessalonians themselves. They are the proof that he is a true man of God. The proof is in the transformation of the Thessalonians that takes place. So their transformation is the proof that something real, something authentic has happened here. Their changed lives show that Paul was not just running a con. They show the gospel he presented was very much for real. Today, we live in a culture that's saturated by advertisements and by hype. We have messages from all kinds of people trying to sell us things. And we've gotten to the point where we're almost automatically skeptical. We dismiss, we ignore almost all of these claims because we know most of them are just hype. But it's hard to argue with a transformed life. For example, you hear all kinds of diet plans being pushed, and it's easy to dismiss them. However, if you know someone who has transformed their life through a particular diet, it gives that diet a lot more credibility in your sight. And so transformation is always the hallmark of authentic conversions. Jesus himself said it over and over. He said, look at the fruit that a person is producing. It's impossible for a good tree to produce bad fruit or a bad fruit tree to produce good fruit. The Thessalonian church, they were proving the reality of their conversion through the fruit of transformed lives. And Paul begins his letter to the Thessalonians by mentioning several of these transformations. He starts out by expressing his thankfulness for those who are at Thessalonica. Now, when you know about the problems Paul has experienced at some of the other churches, think back to the church at Corinth that caused him so many difficulties, you can see why Paul would be glad to have a church like the Thessalonians, a church that wasn't causing him problems. Now, we have to ask ourselves, do other people say this about us? Is our boss thankful that we work for him? Is our family thankful that we're related to them? Is our pastor thankful that we're a part of his church? This really is a very concrete way of determining our transformation. But Paul goes on to say, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. There was a definite change in the Thessalonians. 
And we see what transformation should be evident in our lives as well. After conversion, there was a new power at work among the Thessalonians. And in our lives, there should be a new power that's evident, a power over sin, a power over any addictions that have been present, a power over sinking back into our old lifestyles. After conversion, the Thessalonians also demonstrated the presence of the Holy Spirit among them. They were producing the fruits of the Spirit. So we ask ourselves, can others look at our lives? Can they see the fruit of the Spirit? Do we demonstrate love and joy and peace and patience and all of these other things that we know the Spirit produces in our lives? The reality Too often, we don't see these changes among those who are claiming to be Christians. And it may be that we don't see transformation because we don't really see true conversions. Pastor Darrell Gustafson wrote in a biblical counseling newsletter in 2016. He writes, Counselors across the United States say that 75% of those who come to them for counseling, 75% think they, have been, think they are Christians, but they really have not been converted. Now, I don't know about those exact numbers, but I would say that he's certainly on to uh, a, a certain truth here. We have to face the reality. Too many people come to our churches Sunday after Sunday. They participate in all of our programs, They say all of the right things, but yet they are not genuinely converted. So the question becomes, why? Paul was at Thessalonica for just a few short weeks, and yet there were authentic conversions that took place. There were lives that were changed. So how do we see people sit in our congregations week after week, and yet there's nothing? I think a big part of it is how we do church, so to speak. We go about it in the wrong way. Think of how we bring people into the church. We have emphasized almost exclusively getting people to make a decision for Christ, to accept Christ as their Savior. This is a necessary first step. It's crucial. But the gospel does not stop here. The gospel goes beyond this to see changing in all of our lives. Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God's plan is not just to see us forgiven, but to see us transformed. When we consider how we evangelize and how Jesus evangelized, we see a big difference. It's surprising how many times Jesus would actually discourage those who came wanting to be disciples. Over and over again, we find Jesus telling them, count the cost. He warns them, make sure you know what you're getting into. Make sure you know what it takes to be a disciple. And I think that really uh, accounts for a lot of the problems we see in conversion. People are accepting Christ, but they're not really willing to become disciples of Christ. Another big danger for us in the church is to assume that this transformation is a one-and-done experience. The idea that transformation occurs when we are saved, 
But it's finished. It's over. And for us in the holiness tradition, we often shift the focus to sanctification and to assume that once we're sanctified, all transformation is finished. But transformation is intended to be a lifelong process. We are to be in a continual process of being transformed, of being made more and more Christ-like. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, in this first chapter of Thessalonians, Paul describes several specific ways in which the Thessalonians were transformed and then how the world was impacted as a result. First of all, the Thessalonian church was transformed by the gospel because they lived in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And their world was impacted. They became a model to all of the believers. Paul writes, For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul begins by recognizing reality. The Thessalonians did live in the midst of severe suffering. He doesn't sugarcoat the issue, doesn't ignore the reality of suffering. It's interesting, Buddha's first noble truth is life is suffering. Now, I'm not a Buddhist, far from it, but there is some truth to this. Christian psychiatrist Scott Peck says basically the same thing when he writes, Life is difficult. Scripture tells us the same thing. As Christians, we should expect to suffer. 1 Peter 4.12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Modern life, with our emphasis on technology and the ease of consumerism, we have become convinced that suffering is not the norm, that if we are suffering, there should be an answer, that we shouldn't have to suffer. And so when we do experience suffering, we begin to think somehow God is not doing his job. But Paul knew suffering could be the catalyst for transformation. Paul points out what is unusual about the suffering of the Thessalonians. It wasn't the fact that they suffered, but it was the idea that they could suffer and yet, in the middle of extreme suffering, experience joy. Their suffering did not present, prevent them from living with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is true transformation. When we have joy, regardless of what is going on in our lives, regardless of any outward circumstances, the joy that Paul is describing here, this is not an emotion, not something that the Thessalonians drummed up in themselves. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's much more of an attitude, a way of life, than it is an emotion. Now, we know our emotions fluctuate. They go up and down. But Paul tells us our joy should be constant. It should be a constant presence in our lives. And this joy really is intended to be one of the defining characteristics of the Christian life. Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Now, when you look at this, this is a biblical command. But it's one that we don't really think of as a command. We don't treat it with the other seriousness that we do similar commands from Scripture. As Christians, we would never dream of violating commands like don't get drunk on wine, commands like avoid sexual immorality, in your anger do not sin. But we don't really put much effort into keeping this command, the command to rejoice always. A lot of times we look at it, well, that's great if you can do it, but it's really not a big deal if you don't do it. But the Thessalonians showed this joy in the midst of suffering. This was something that impacted the world around them. They became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's interesting, the church at Thessalonians, this is the only New Testament church that Paul speaks of as a positive example for the other churches. And I believe it's a direct consequence of the joy that transformed their lives. Think of what it would mean for our world if we were a model of joy in the midst of suffering. Technology has brought us a lot of benefits, but it's also given us a social media culture, a culture where we constantly air our grievances, where we throw out our complaints for all of the world to see. We don't endure suffering very quietly. But when believers can live out their lives in circumstances of extreme suffering and yet be joyful, our world sits up and takes notice of this. Now, Paul also writes that the Thessalonian church was being transformed as they became imitators of the apostles and even more importantly, imitators of Christ himself. And this made them a model to the believers. Paul writes, You know how we lived among you for, for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and so you became a model. The apostles did not bring the gospel just as words, just as a message. They knew it took more than this. They knew that the way they lived would have to back up their gospel, and they were confident in the example they provided, that if only the Thessalonians would imitate them, would act as they acted. If the Thessalonians would do this, the Thessalonians would be imitating Christ himself. It's interesting when we look at what Paul writes about this. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul tells the Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, there's nothing unusual about this. We expect to be told to imitate God, to act like God. But in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul also says, Be imitators of me. Now, think of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you want to be an imitator of God, an imitator of Christ, then all you need to do is look at what I'm doing and copy me. Do the same things that I am doing. Again, 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes, So I urge you to imitate me. It's, it's one of the more unusual things that Paul says. But when you think about what it takes to make that claim, now, the narcissist, the person with the huge ego, they may make this claim and think nothing about it. They're assured of their own greatness. But for most of us, 
we realize the liability we take on when we make a claim like this. Often, we don't want to make this claim because we do not want to be held responsible for backing it up. But think of the impact on this world when we truly live out what Paul is saying here. When we live lives that are so Christ-like that people know exactly what Christ is like by looking at us, they would know how Christ would respond in a specific situation. They would know what things that Christ put a priority on. They would see the love of Christ deep and full. And this is something that our society desperately needs and for the most part is not getting. Mahatma Gandhi is well known for his quote, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Gandhi at one time was questioned by the missionary E. Stanley Jones, and he was asked why he had rejected Christianity, becoming a follower of Christ. Gandhi responded, Oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Now, I'm not sure if that would be true or not, but when we live as Christ lives, when we become truly Christ-like, it makes an impact on our world. Paul writes about a third transformation he sees. He says, The Thessalonian church is transformed by the gospel as they turn to God from idols, as they turn to serve the living and the true God. As a result, the Lord's message rang out from them so that their faith became known everywhere. Paul writes, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then later he writes, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. The Thessalonian church was transformed because they turned from idols. John Calvin writes, Man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Calvin was expressing the basic truth. In his sinful state, man cannot help but to worship idols. It's our default position. It's our basic nature. Now, we look at this idea of idol worship and we think, well, is that really a problem anymore? Who worships idols today? But when you look at the essence of idolatry, it's to put something or someone in the place of God, to look to something or someone other than God for what God alone should provide for us. So we have to ask ourselves, are many people in the church idol worshipers without even really realizing it? Have we put things into the place of God? Think of what God should provide for us. He should provide our sense of safety, of security, of well-being. God should provide the purpose for our lives. God should be the one who makes our lives worth living where we should obtain our satisfaction, our enjoyment. But even many Christians, they find themselves chasing other ways to satisfy these desires. Basically, idolatry comes down to what do you look to in order to make your life worth living? What are the things that you feel like you could not do without? Is it your job, your lifestyle, your uh, 
technical gadgets. Uh, maybe it's your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your spouse, your family, your fame, your reputation. There are so many things that can sneak in and take the place of God in our lives. Now, the Thessalonians were transformed because they quit falling for this trap of idolatry. They left the false reality of idols. Instead, they began to serve the living and the true God. And as a result, Paul says, the Lord's message rang out. It's interesting, this Greek word for to ring out, it's used only here in the New Testament. And it's used to describe a clap of thunder, the roar of a large multitude, the sound of a loud trumpet. Our world is astonished to see people who no longer worship idols, who worship the true reality of God Himself. Think of how different these lives are from the norm. Now, the faith of the Thessalonians showed what is possible, that we can live lives uh, where we do not join in society's pursuit of idols, where we can look to God to provide what, what we should get from God. Now, Paul also writes that the Thessalonian church was transformed by the gospel as they waited for the rescue promised by the return of Christ. He writes, They tell how you turn to God from idols, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, they waited for Jesus, the one who had been raised from the dead and was now in heaven. They waited in the full confidence that even though Jesus was not physically present with them, that Jesus had been resurrected, that Jesus was indeed God. They were living in opposition to everything that this society told them about life and about physical life. They were living in a kingdom which was here and yet not here at the same time. They were waiting for Jesus with the expectation that he would rescue them from the coming wrath, confident that God was in control, that Christ was reigning in this world. So they were waiting without worry, without apprehension. Even in the most dangerous of circumstances, and you think how this applies to our world, we live in a world that seems overrun with dangers, terrorism, cyber threats, pandemics, uh, natural catastrophes. All of these things make our world a very dangerous place. But we can be confident that Christ is still at work. Christ is still reigning. Now, the Thessalonians, uh, their waiting was demonstrated in three ways. As they waited, they produced work or their work was produced by faith. So they continued to work. They didn't sit and wait passively. They knew they had obligations to fulfill. We are to wait, but we're to carry on while we wait. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 46, It will be good for that servant whose, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Now, their work was produced by faith, fueled by the assurance that their work was not in vain, that their work would be effective, that it would produce results. Paul urged the Galatians, don't become weary in well-doing and doing good, 
you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so it's easy for us to look around, to be discouraged, to think that our efforts are in vain. But the Thessalonians were waiting, and while they were waiting, they were working, a work produced by faith. Paul also writes that as they waited, their labor was prompted by love. John Piper writes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In other words, God receives the most glory when we serve Him, not out of duty or out of discipline, but when we serve God out of love, out of respect and admiration for who God is. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God promises the Israelites, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Then you will live in the land. You will be my people and I will be your God. This really is our message of sanctification, that we can serve God out of a heart made perfect in love. Serving God because we love Him over and above anything and everything else. Now also we find that the Thessalonians uh, lived with endurance inspired by hope. Now, waiting is hard. It's something that we do not do naturally or easily. You know, Jesus told the disciples over and over again, your job is to wait. Our culture is prejudiced against endurance. You know, we want to take charge. We want to change our situation. To endure is to really accept the situation that we're in. To endure admits that we are really helpless to do anything about it. Now, how many times do we hear people in our world say, this is unacceptable. We don't like the idea that we have things that affect us that really are impossible for us to change. So our society sees endurance as passive, as weak, as being a victim. But strength is shown by our ability to endure. Our endurance in this present world, as it really is, in this world with all of its trials, this places us squarely in the middle of God's salvation narrative. It demonstrates to the world God is reclaiming, redeeming everything. And we have full confidence and faith that this is occurring. You know, Jesus over and over tells us that we are not to resist evil. And Jesus himself did not resist evil. Lynn Kohick writes, Endurance is allowing others to choose your course, having your hands tied by cancer, your feet bound by unemployment, your arms and legs drawn and quartered by an unfaithful spouse, it is the reality of evil being done to you, on you, at you. But then she writes, Endurance is about receiving from God the gift of powerlessness. It's interesting to think of that, of powerlessness as being a gift. But really, when we recognize that in many situations we are powerless, it makes us depend upon God. We find ourselves as the Thessalonians with endurance inspired by hope. Now, as a result, their faith in God became known everywhere. 
they were living in a way in which they stood out from their neighbor. And when our world sees us living such a different type of life, it stands out. It makes a difference. Now, we have a very effective model of evangelism that's presented to us in this first chapter of of Thessalonians, a way of winning our world to Christ, not by the words that we say, but showing them lives transformed by the gospel. We are able to show God's grace in action and the difference that this makes. We present the gospel as a way of life, a way of life that is attractive, that's beautiful. Most of our world is not aware that such a way of life is even possible, but when they see it through us, it makes a difference. Paul writes in Philippians 2.15, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We live in a warped and crooked generation. Without God, man cannot help but be this way. Now, we're not talking about those that are uh, specifically or especially evil. But everyone without God is twisted, is warped, is crooked. Our minds are twisted. Our emotions are twisted. Our priorities and our values. You think of all the strange ways in which we live when we're caught up in in the lifestyles promoted by our culture. So, when we are presented with a different way, when we are presented with God's way, the way that things were meant to be, when we are shown a person who's living the life that God designed for us to live, it's so unusual that it captivates us. It's bound to get our attention. This kind of life is a life that's truly shining like a star in the universe. And so the challenge on us, can we be transformed by the gospel, transformed to the extent that we make an impact on our world? Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the difference that you make in our lives, for the transformation that occurs as, as we give ourselves over to you. And we ask, Lord, that this transformation would take place in our lives, that we could present to the world a shining example of what it means to be a Christian, to be a, a person of God. We give you the praise in your name. Amen.